Please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me once again to the book of Genesis. I'm going to read a few verses from chapter 2 and then the entirety of chapter 3 this morning. Chapter 2, verse 4, where we'll begin, uh, is the beginning of the second section of the book of Genesis. Having given the creation account, it now moves on to speak of the, the interaction with, between man and God, and uh, there in Eden and then beyond. So we're going to read of uh, beginning at verse 4 and then down to verse 7. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that Yahweh God made earth and heaven. Drop down to verses 7 through 9. Then Yahweh God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And so the man became a living being. And Yahweh God planted a garden in Eden toward the east. And there he placed the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, Yahweh God caused to grow every tree that is desirable in appearance and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now drop down with me to verse 15 through 17. Then Yahweh God took the man, the one that he had just formed, took the man and set him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may surely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat from it, for in the day that you eat from it you will die. Then drop down to verses 22, and we'll read from verse 22 of chapter 2 to the end of chapter 3. And Yahweh God fashioned the rib which he had taken from the man into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, This one finally is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, because, she, because this one was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh." And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. And from the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat from it, and you shall not touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took from, it, from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Then they heard the sound of Yahweh God coming in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God in the midst of the trees of the garden. Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then Yahweh God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And Yahweh God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than any of the cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat. And all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain, and conception in pain you will bear children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will, will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. Then Yahweh God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he send forth his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever... Therefore Yahweh God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove, him, drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Well, let's seek the face of God once again. His word would make impact upon our own hearts this morning. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we come to you in the name of your beloved Son, who made the way of access into your presence through his own death, and ask in his name that you would grant to us your Spirit's help to rightly understand your word. Help me to articulate it clearly. Help us to take it and apply it, that it would transform our lives. We plead with you, Father, that you would be among us by your Spirit, is the one who is revealing to us the truths from your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. This section of God's word is again part of those foundational sections in the Bible to give us truths that, that, that set the, the stage, as it were, for all of human history. We've seen God, we've read again this morning, God's creation of the first man and the first woman. How he brought them together in that perfect place called Eden. And how they enjoyed a perfect world together. 
We've read and we've studied in the past, chapter 3, the, what's commonly called the fall of man. The serpent appears out of nowhere and begins to make declarations uh, about which, which are completely contrary to what God has already said to, to, to Adam and Eve. The serpent, the devil, is the agent of the temptation that led to the fall. He converses in verses 1 through 5 with, with the woman, and that becomes the occasion of her being tempted and then beginning to look at the tree and becoming very pragmatic about life. And really what we see is, is the people of God taking to themselves the role of God. They, they want to be autonomous. They want to set the rules. They don't want to follow God's one very clear directive to them to not eat from that one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, Satan's temptation of them is successful. So we read in verses 6 through 8 of their rebellion. The woman is deceived. The man is not deceived, but he rebels deliberately. And the image bearers then were marred. Then we came to verses 8 through 19 of this chapter and looked at the consequences of the sin, the judgment, God mercifully examining Adam and Eve, and then God righteously sentencing the serpent, the man, and the woman. And that brings us to our section this morning, verses 20 through 24. There's a sense in which we started in a, in a, in a place where everything was beautiful and, and, and wonderful and, and perfectly ordered. It was a world that, that was not marred by anything. And we have just gone from one degree of uh, depth of, of trouble to another as we've come through chapter 3, where the serpent leads them to rebel against God. And in their rebellion against God, then they have to face God, and they try to hide from God, and they're, they're ashamed before God, and they feel fear in their hearts because they're at odds with God. And so God addresses them, beginning with the serpent. No questions given to the man, or to, excuse me, to the serpent at all. No questions, just a, a, blatant, a, a direct judgment for his place in seeking to undermine God's order. And then he comes to the woman and he speaks to her of the pain and the agony and the turmoil that is going to mark her life and will mark the lives of all after them in, in, in family lives. And we looked at how far that sin has gone. And then in Adam and his sin, and God speaks to him and, and brings judgment against him that the land will be cursed and he will work, but, but there will be terrible difficulties. And there's a sense in which after hearing those last words from God to Adam. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. That the whole thing seems to have been undone. The man that he took from the dust, the man that he had put in the garden, that he had planted for him, where he had all that he needed, is now going to be completely undone. Death is going to rule. Death is going to be the final, get the final say. To dust you shall return. And it looks like everything's undone. And even God, in a sense, has, has taken a place in undoing all that, right? Because he has come to his sinful creatures and, and has sentenced them to turmoil and pain and suffering and difficulty and death for their sin. 
And we think, could it get darker? Well, it does get darker before it gets brighter. I have three points in these verses, verses 20 to 24, that I'd like for us to look at. I call this the aftermath of of the sin, the aftermath. Uh, I don't like that word, but I couldn't find any, come up with a better one in my mind. The aftermath of the fall and the sentencing. And so we have three points. Verse 20, a spark of faith. Verse 21, the surprise of mercy. And verses 22 to 24, the severity of judgment. A spark of faith, the surprise of mercy, and the severity of judgment. Verse 20 is one of those verses that you come to in our Bibles, and, and, and to me, it's just one of those that kind of goes, whoa, did I miss something? Have, have I stumbled somewhere? Did, you know, he's just said, you're going to die, and now the man looks at his wife and gives her a new name. The man begins to exercise or continues to exercise his authority as the man in this relationship, and so he names her. And I'm calling this a spark of faith. Now, when I first read it, I, I can't say that I really saw much purpose in it. I was going, what is this all about? But the more I read of my commentators, almost to a man, except for one commentator on Genesis, all the commentaries I read said, this is a, a statement of Adam's faith. Now, that's what, let's examine that. How could this be a statement of faith that he names his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living? Well, the fact of the matter is, is that God had said to the woman, you will greatly I will greatly multiply your pain and conception. In pain, you will bear children. Your desire will be to your husband, but he, and he will rule over you. So God has said, even in the, the judgment, the sentencing of the woman, that she is going to give birth in pain, have conception in pain, and rear children, as it were, in pain, and all of this process of being bringing forth image bearers of God is going to be marked by pain, and there's going to be turmoil in her relationship with her husband, yet there's an, an element of mercy that God says, you will bear children. And then remember what we saw in the, in the last sermon we looked at in Genesis 3 and verse 15, one of these descendants, one of the seed of this woman, is actually going to be the one who is going to crush the serpent's head and be the final champion over the enemy of God. There is one who is going to come. And so Adam, who when first addressed by God, points to the woman and blames the woman, and, and indirectly blames God for the sin that he had committed, now turns and says, you, my wife, Isha, woman, are going to be called Eve. I am, he gives her a proper name. And that name is the mother of living. Living. One man said that it is, the, it is through the power of divine grace that Adam believed the promise with regard to the woman's seed and manifested his faith in the name he gave his wife. And that name, as this man put it, is Life Spring. She is the one from whom all life is going to come. So in other words, Adam has, in naming his wife, seems to be indicating a measure of faith that he believes she is going to have children. She's not going to die immediately. He didn't die immediately. 
And so there are going to be children, and one of those children is actually going to be the one, not only will there be the continuance of the human race, but the one will be the champion of the human race that will actually be their deliverer. And so there is, I call it a spark of faith. This isn't your, your big statement like, uh, P, like, Paul, excuse me, like Peter when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now there is a statement of faith. There's a bold faith. It's a spark of faith. But it is a measure of faith. And I have to agree that I believe that this is actually Adam now taking the word of God and saying, guess what? I believe the word of God. I am actually going to follow your words. You said she will bear children. You said one would come from her from as her seed and it would be the champion. Therefore, I am going to name her in light of that. I am going to exercise my authority over my, um, my realm, my sphere of authority in my home. And I will name her Eve because she is the mother of all living. We see something of a transition here that is very similar to what we see, should see in every conversion. True conversion begins with some sense of my sinfulness before a holy God. And my deservedness of, of the wrath of God for those sins that I've committed. And then true salvation then comes to the individual when they hear the promises of God that if we confess our sins, he'll forgive us, that the blood of Christ can cleanse us from all our sins, that there is, there is faith that, the, that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners, and I believe the promise. Adam has gone from one who is rejecting the word of God to one who is at least standing in part on the truth of the word of God. And brethren, that's, the, that's exactly what takes place in true saving religion. In true salvation, a sinner sees his sin and then turns and believes the word of God. But more than that, every one of us is, can be challenged by, by Adam's faith here. You see, he takes these statements made in the midst of, of God sentencing Eve, and he makes them the place where he stands to find comfort and hope for the future. I'm going to name her Eve because I really believe what God has said, that we're going to have a human race. There, we are going to continue, and there is going to be one who is going to come. And so it is an example to us to take every one of God's words seriously. And that's one of the big lessons of this whole section. And I've had this, uh, this one section of applications that just keeps following sermon after sermon because I never quite get to it, so I'm going to stick it in here. And that is whatever God says is true. We need to believe it. We need to believe it if it's a promise. Those are the nice things, right? He's a very present help in, kind of, in times of trouble. What a great promise to lay hold of in the midst of trouble. He knows me through and through and no one can snatch me out of his hands. What a, what a wonderful promise that is uh, for, the, for the believer to lay hold of in the midst of, of difficulty. But what about the threats and the warnings? Do we also lay hold of those and say, let God be true and every man a liar? When he says the wages of sin is death. When he says that our sins separate us from God and put distance between us and God, do we, stay, do we stand on those as well and say, yes, that's just as true. 
Whatever God says, it's true. And we need, to, we need to stand on it. And some of you, that's exactly what you need to come to grips with, is if God said it, that settles it. But science says, no, that doesn't, that doesn't trump God's word. Because he ordered science. But philosophers say, well, that's all fine and good, but philosophers don't trump God. Let God be true, Paul says, and every man a liar. And some of you, when you hear the judgments of God that the wages of sin is death, and that you hear about a God who cannot look upon sin and, with his eyes and, and with any kind of favor, you need to see that and say, that means I'm under the wrath of God. You need to believe what God says about you. He has said it for your good. So here we see a spark of faith. May God give us more than a spark of faith to take God at his word. But I move on quickly to the next one, verse 21, the surprise of mercy. Because we come to verse 21, then Yahweh God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Now, all kinds of questions about uh, how he made the garments. Did he, did he actually create them out of nothing? Did he, did he sew them himself? Did he tell Adam and Eve to do it? He says, go kill an animal and here's what I want you to do. There's nothing in the Bible to tell us. It just says that God did it. Right? So God did it. I'm not going to go any longer on that point. God made these garments. But did you ever notice, did you ever ask the question, why is he making garments for them when he told them they're going to die? Why is it all of a sudden now he's, he's actually caring for them when he's just sentenced them to trouble, difficulty, and death? Well, the bottom line is that it's, it's clear that they're not going to die yet. But that doesn't make sense because he said that, that you, if you eat of the tree, you should die. Well, we have to come back and say, well, what does it mean that they died? And we'll come to that in just a minute. But the physical death has not come yet. It will come. And the seeds of death are there. But, but the fact of the matter is there's a measure of mercy here. There's a measure of mercy here. They, they're given a, a covering. And it's a word which probably best describes something as a token, or excuse me, a toga, or, a, or, or a, 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 a outer, an inner garment that covers one entirely. For remember what they did when they sinned. They immediately felt shame and fear. And what did they do? They tried to cover themselves. They tried to make their own way of covering up their problem. And we're great at doing that, aren't we? We create a problem, and our sin creates a problem. What do we immediately try to find some way to, well, well I'll deal with it. I'll just, I'll just be a little bit nicer to my, to my wife tomorrow because today I was really mean to her. And somehow that'll, that'll be the, the leaves that I'll put on that'll cover up my sin. Or, you know, or, or well, you know, I, I lied in that particular circumstance, so, so now I'll, I'll be overly kind and, and give generously uh, to somebody in need uh, because I lied before I stole. But we try to make our own leaves. We try to take our science. We try to take our philosophy. We try to take different things to try to cover ourselves up. And God says, you know, that's no good. So God says, I will provide you a covering. And I will make it myself. I will make you a covering and completely cover you. Uh, one comment, commentary described this as a durable covering, a durable protection. But it's far more than just he gave him something that was going to last longer than leaves. Right? 
he had become, they had become not just physically naked. They were not just physically naked. When they sinned, they became spiritually naked. They stood before God and completely exposed in their sin. And God comes and in this picture covers them to take care of their shame. He covers them to take care of their guilt. He covers them with these garments that they might be no longer subject to this kind of shame and fear and anxiety. Now, some have gone so far as to say there were, these were sacrifices. So God had had these sacrifices that were offered, these animals were killed, but there's nothing to say actually that they were sacrificed first. And since it says that God made these things, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me that God sacrificed something to himself. There's not, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's not a lesson to Adam and Eve about death and a substitute taking the place for their guilt. And I think that's probably what we need to, to grasp as we look at this. The significance of their clothing, in part, was, due to the, was, the, was to show that God had provided a way for them to be covered, for their guilt to be taken care of, their shame to be covered. God was providing that for them. And this is what their, these skins were meant to, to display. Now, it must have been incredibly shocking to Adam and Eve if these, to see these dead animals, if they actually did see them. Because death had not existed up until now. And I'm, I'm of the judgment that there was no death, not even in the animal kingdom. There was there were probably death among trees. That that's not the same thing as an animal dying or a human dying. But there was no animal death, and so they hadn't seen this. And all of a sudden, here are... Here are some creatures that are dead and to give up this skin in order that they might be clothed. And so if they saw anything like that, it would have been very shocking to them to see that. And it, it probably would have opened their eyes to a new level of what it means when God said, you shall die. This is what death looks like. And so these garments are made to cover them from animals. And so these garments would signify a couple of things to them. It would signify that God had provided a surprising mercy. That's why I had the title, The Surprising Mercy. I don't think I told you I made that transition. Surprising mercy that, out of no, that God now decides, I'm going to give you something to cover your nakedness. I'm going to give you something to cover your shame. He's, he's taking care of them. He's showing them this mercy instead of coming immediately with judgment and, and death. And so their clothes would have constantly reminded them, God has given a covering for me. How many of you, when you put on your, your clothes this morning, now I did because I knew I'd been preparing the sermon, put on your clothes this morning and say, praise God, he has clothed me with the righteousness of Christ so that my shame has been dealt with, my guilt has been dealt with. But that's what our garments say to us. They say something of the fact that that shame, that guilt has been dealt with, that has been covered. And that's a surprising mercy from God, that he would make that provision for us. But it also says something else. Our clothing always reminds us that we're fallen. We're fallen. We're sinful creatures. We need covering. We need to have our sinfulness dealt with. We need to have our sinfulness covered, our shame dealt with. 
Calvin said this, said it this way, God therefore designed that our first parents should, in such a dress, in such clothing, behold their own vileness and should thus be reminded of their sin. Because remember, they were naked and ashamed. That's why I went back and read that. There was complete transparency and openness and there was no, no shame and no guilt and no no anxiety. They could stand before one another with complete transparency and enjoy the love of that intimate relationship. And even before God, they could enjoy that, that clarity, that transparency. That's been shattered. And now their garments remind them of what they've lost. Lost because of their sin. And that's what our clothing should do as well. If I could just make a little digression here from the central purpose of the passage. The passage is not talking about uh, how we ought to dress. But it does address the fact that we ought to dress. Nakedness is akin to shame. Nakedness is not something that we should look for or and to expect in any setting other than within the confines of the intimate relationship of marriage. Clothing is necessary because we are fallen creatures. Clothing is necessary because we live in a fallen world with other fallen creatures. Nakedness is not an option today. And so, therefore, should be avoided at all costs. I remember seeing a BBC uh, article that, that uh, was talking about this, these natives that they had found somewhere, I think it was in the Amazon River Basin, and, and they, were, they were all running around without any clothing, and they were saying, oh, isn't this wonderful how we have found people that are untainted by civilization? No, their nakedness was not a sign that they were untainted. It was a sign that they were very tainted. Because they had not come to see the sinfulness that needed to be covered. And so we should labor, brethren, in our apparel to make sure that we cover all nakedness. It's part of the, why the Bible talks about modesty. Right here, I'm talking about worldview, right? We're right here at the very beginning, God says, guess what? Fallen creatures should wear clothes. By his example, that's what he has. Fallen creatures should wear clothing. And it should cover up their nakedness. And I won't go into all the specifics of what makes something naked or not naked, but there are certain parts of the human body that are to be covered because they are identified as being naked if they are showing or if they are being displayed. In a fallen world, that ought not to be. I'll move on. The main point here is that God provided a covering for them. And that covering was done through animal skins, which, if nothing else, sets the stage for and points in the direction of what we see in the book of Leviticus, where all these sacrifices are offered for the atonement for sin. And a covering for sin is made by the, by the sacrifice of another, the substitutionary sacrifice of an animal, which then only points forward to a greater substitutionary sacrifice that is made by the Lord Jesus Christ. And while I'm not going to say, I cannot say personally that verse 21 specifically says this is a substitutionary sacrifice on behalf of sin, yet I'm going to say at least it sets the tenor for and points in the direction of what is yet to come. 
and especially that's going to be in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for sinners, that our sins might be atoned for, our sins might be covered. So a spark of faith where Adam takes and lays hold of God's word and stands upon it and even uses from that posture in names his wife Eve, and a surprise of mercy where God comes and meets them at their point of need and covers them and, and helps them. And that brings me to my last point, the severity of judgment. The severity of judgment. Look with me at verse 22 and see something of the divine reasoning. We've heard divine reasoning before, uh, back in chapter 1, when God said, let us make man in our image. Here we have God speaking to himself again. Then Yahweh God said, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he find, send forth his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So in this divine reasoning... In this Trinitarian conversation, let he is like one of us, we learn something about God's reasoning behind his judgment of man. Now Moses, in writing this, puts a word in there, then, and, and God may have actually said the word, behold, but to whom did he say that? I think Moses highlights this for us, that we would be challenged, say, wait a minute, stop and think about this. What is it that God is saying? Well, God is saying, first of all, in his divine reasoning, that man's first knowledge, man's new knowledge here, excuse me, man's new knowledge is not good. Man's new knowledge is not good. Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing or to know good and evil. Man has a new knowledge. Man now has this new evil, this new knowledge. It said earlier, his eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened, and they did see something, but their new knowledge of good and evil was not a good knowledge. Now, while it's like God in one sense, it's very much not like God in other senses. You see, man wants to be, man is acting here in a, in a way to make himself autonomous, divine. Remember what, what the serpent said, you shall be like God. And they said, oh, okay. It is enough to make one wise. And okay, so they want to be God, like God. They want to be divine. They want to be self governing. They want to decide for themselves what is good and what is evil, not what God has said about what is good and what is evil. Calvin simply states what every one of the commentators states, and that is that Adam was not content with his present condition and tried to ascend higher than was lawful. He wanted that knowledge. And while it was like God in the sense that there are two things which he now sees, it was very much unlike God because God knew good and evil. And how does God know good and evil? Perfectly, objectively, and externally. Because he's never committed any evil. He is not evil. He cannot tempt to evil. And so God knows all of this externally, and in terms of that which is contrary or opposite of him. Man's knowledge, on the other hand, is a knowledge which he knows imperfectly, subjectively, and internally. That is, he knows it from personal experience. He knows evil from doing that which is evil. He knows it from being a slave to it now. 
Very different knowledge to know that one is, knows about evil from being a slave to evil and a slave to sin than one who can look at it and say, if you do this, you will be a slave to sin. Man had decided he wanted to be like God, but he forfeited part of that which made him most like God. He forfeited his righteousness, his uprightness, which was made after the image of God. And forfeiting that, he took to himself that which was not good, a knowledge of evil by personal experience. And it's very interesting because Martin Lloyd-Jones, and this is one of the books I, I would encourage everybody to get a copy of. And I'll show you at the door more than likely. It's the Gospel in Genesis, Martin Lloyd-Jones sermons from Genesis 3 and Genesis 6. But Martin Lloyd-Jones makes it very clear when he opens up this reality of every one of us has this same kind of knowledge. Did you notice, did you notice in verse 22, behold the man has become like one of us. Not the man and the woman, the man. Our representative that passed on to us that sinful nature that we, we looked at a few weeks ago. He passed on that same kind of knowledge. We each know knowledge, have knowledge of evil. Why? Or in a way that is because it is our master. We know evil because it is our chains. We know evil because we are guilty and feel that guilt within our conscience. We have what Martin Lloyd-Jones calls an, an appalling knowledge of evil. Every one of us, it is inside us. Man, in seeking it, found it. A man who works in a lab who's studying cancer and cancer treatments knows a lot about cancer. He knows a lot about those cells. He knows a lot about how they might develop. He knows a lot about how to address them, what makes them up, what, what differentiates one from another kind of cancer. And he can, he can identify those things, but he knows that externally he can look at those cells. It's a far different thing from a man in a lab looking at cells to the person sitting in the doctor's office that hears you've got cancer. And that's what's different about us. We know evil because we have evil within us. We came into this world and it was our master. We came into this world and we listened to its dictates and we followed its paths. We knew it because it was the chains that we wore. And so God says the judgment that is to come is first of all because the knowledge they have is not good. But then he goes on to add to that he says, and now, lest he send forth his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. That tree of life, which presumably they had access to from the very beginning, because they were only told not to eat from one tree. And that tree was there as well. Whether they ate from it or not, I'm not going to go into that at this point in time. But the fact of the matter is, right now, there's the possibility that they might take of the tree of life in their present condition... And it would not be good. Now, let's just, let me just erase something here from your mind, just to, so you know. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil wasn't, didn't have poisonous fruit. Right? It wasn't just because the fruit had some poison in it that they couldn't eat it. 
It was because God said, do not eat of it. And the tree of life doesn't have some super nutrient that if they ate it, they would just do and they would be, you know, forever strong and forever live. That wasn't the point. It wasn't some nutrient. It was because God had designed you eat from this tree is how I promise you life. And the danger at this point in time is that they will take from that tree and they will eat from that tree which God has put in the midst of the garden that is to be the tree of life. And in the eating of it, they would live eternally. Now, there's two reasons why God may be saying this. I don't want them to eat from the tree that they might live eternally. There's two ways to understand that. God may be preventing them from completing their efforts at being autonomous. He doesn't want them to eat from this tree and continue in their path of autonomy and then go on in their autonomy living contrary to God's will. The other way of viewing it, a slightly different way, is that if they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they will then be eternally bound, never able to be saved from their state of sin like the angels who were bound in darkness. And many of the commentators say that is the reason for why they, they were not allowed to partake of it. But whatever the case, God says the knowledge that they have is not good, and if they eat from the tree of the knowledge of the eat from the tree of life, it'll be worse. It'll be worse for them forever because it's eternal life. And they will live forevermore. But now, you notice that the sentence doesn't end. He doesn't say, so therefore, or conclusion being. And it, it's, it's as though God, in a sense, almost interrupts himself and says, I've got to get on with this because this really needs to be dealt with. Now, I, we're speaking, humanly speaking, in terms of God. God knew exactly what he was doing. He didn't interrupt himself and forget to say something. But the fact of the matter is it's written in such a way to help us understand the expediency, the speed at which God wants to get on with this judgment. This judgment needs to be spoken. And so he goes on in the very next verse, verse 23, to speak divine judgment. So we've seen the divine conversation. We've seen the divine intention in verse 22. Now we see divine judgment in verses 23 and 24a. Therefore Yahweh sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. He drove the man out. Man wanted to be like God. Man wanted to live autonomously forever by himself. Man was trying to do away with God, as it were. That's why he said, just follow the lie of the evil one. You shall be like God. And God says, no. It's not going to be that way. And so God intervenes, and God brings judgment. Now, it's mercy mixed with judgment. Because you'll notice the first thing he says is, therefore Yahweh God sent them out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he's saying, the things I've told you are going to go on. You are going to cultivate the ground. Life is going to go on. Even in a context of death, life will continue. It will be difficult, painful, all the things that we saw from the sentencing. But don't miss the fact that it's actually a judgment. God sent him out. God sent him out. And then he goes on in verse 24 and says it even stronger. He drove them out. This wasn't just God saying, okay, you know, um, I, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Please, please, please leave the garden. 
No, it wasn't that at all. It is, get out of the garden, and he drove them out of the garden, just like, the, like he drove out the Canaanites out of the land, just like uh, uh, the priest Abiathar who, who helped Abimelech was driven out of his position as, as a priest. It was, it's, a, it's a forceful action. They are no longer to be in the garden. They are no longer to be in that place of great blessing and great comfort and great peace, the place where God would meet with them in the cool of the day. They were driven from it. They would be deprived from this source of spiritual life. And that leads me to the final and the darkest thing is the divine wrath. The severity of judgment. God may be showing, God did show mercy to them. God did mercifully provide for them. God did allow that they would continue to live, but it's in a context of wrath. For notice he says, the section ends with, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed a cherubim. The word placed doesn't quite catch the meaning of the word if your translation uses that word. He tabernacled there. You know, he set up there. He stationed him there. The cherubim were stationed there, and they were not going to move. And the flaming sword, which turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. They will not have access to the spiritual life they once had. Here's the death that they experienced immediately. Spiritual death, separated from God no longer having that sweet communion with God that they once had, no longer enjoying him walking with them in the cool of the garden. They'd been cast out of the garden, and now God's wrath is marked on that. They cannot go back. The cherubim associated with God's glory and his majesty is standing there. The cherubim of the scriptures are those who, who upheld the throne of God, those who carried him in his chariot, they are marked by various different descriptions in the book of Ezekiel. One man said, the nature and appearance are, as belong, since they belong to another world, beyond human comprehension. He says they, they, they have many different descriptions. These are creatures that are clearly around the throne of God. They are, per, they are particularly described as those who are in the very presence of God. God set one of his cherubim there. In other words, you can't go back without going first and standing in the very presence of the glory and majesty of God on his throne. And right now, that's a throne of judgment. But then he says there's the sword, the flaming sword that moves and turns in every direction. A picture most likely of the wrath of God. In order to go back to the tree of life, one must pass through the wrath of God. The sword of the Lord is one which is filled with blood, is one which is a destroyer, a de brings great destruction. I, Jeremiah 12, Isaiah 34. And it's a sword which turned every way. There's no getting around this sword. 
There's no back door into Eden past the sword. The only way back to the tree of life and to the garden, the only way back to that kind of spiritual life and eternal life is through the cherubim, the glory of God and the majesty of God and his throne room and the wrath of God. Now, we talked about how bad man's problem was with regard to his sin. And sin is a horrible thing. And sin invades us and affects us and twists us and mars us and pains us and does all those things. Sin is a horrible master. And we talked about how difficult it is because not only were the first children, Adam, the first parents, Adam and Eve, and us, their children, not only are we sinners, but we're aligned with the evil one, with Satan. And being aligned with him, we're at enmity with God. And that's how we come into this world. And that's, even, that's, that's bad. We are, we are under the, the direction of the evil one who, who blinds those in their unbelief to seeing the glory of God in the gospel. That's a terrible condition. We're not only sinners, we're, we're aligned with the liar and the murderer, the devil himself, against God as we come into this world. That's a terrible place to be. But here is the worst problem of all. Because it's not only that we have sin, not only that we have, we're aligned with the devil, but in order to get back to eternal life, to get back to spiritual life, we have to face the wrath of God. We have to go into the very presence of the holy God and into his throne room and pass by him and be accepted by him who is at war with us. It doesn't get much darker than that. It, it can't get more difficult than that. And so you see all of these efforts of men to try to do away with death and get back get to something called eternal life. All the sci-fi movies and the sci-fi books and, and the efforts of doctors and scientists to try to say, we can do away with death and we can get to eternal life. We will live forever. We'll just transfer our minds into machines, which of course never fall apart. Never seen one of those. But somehow we'll live forever. Somehow we can get to that point and live forever. And God says, no, you can't get back to that tree except through my throne room, past my cherubim, and past my wrath. Here is man's greatest problem. It's not ignorance. It's not poverty. It's not hunger. There's a sense in which it's not just sin. It's sin against a holy God. It's not just being aligned with the devil. It's being aligned with the devil against a holy God and a wrathful God. Adam and Eve, in order to look back, would have to come face to face with the living God. Face to face with the glory of God. And you know what? The world tells you just get a, get a, get a good life coach. Then, then everything will be better. A life coach isn't going to help you. Or, or, you know, get a life coach and a therapist. You know, when I was growing up, going to a therapist was, uh, you know. Now it's like, oh yeah, I go have two therapists, one for this, one for that. Got a life coach over here. Well, a therapist isn't going to solve your problems. A therapist is not going to be able to deal with, with the wrath of God against you. There's no way to get back to that eternal life through science. There's no way to get back to that eternal life and that true spiritual life that's 
pictured there in the tree of life. Your good works won't do it. Your religious activities won't do it. Man is just banging his head against the wall in all these other ways to try to get back to that place. And you can't. But there's one who did. Now, isn't that the glorious picture? Here we are at the darkest point in Adam and Eve's life, and we come face to face with the one who did just that. Who, who faced the wrath of God on the cross, and that sword pierced him and killed him, and he was buried, and he rose again from the dead and conquered it. The sword was broken. He went into the very presence of the, of the glorious God and could stand there because he shares in that glory and has conquered sin and death. He wasn't cast out. He went out to those who had been cast out. He went outside the camp to sinners like us that he might bring us with him to be many sons of glory, to come back into the presence of God, to have that spiritual life, that eternal life. Here's the problem that the world is facing right now. Here's the nub of it all. They've been cast out. They've been cast out, out of the presence of God, out of the place of spiritual Life and eternal life, they've been cast out and death is hanging over them. The wrath of God abides on them, abides on you if you're outside. The wrath of God. And the only way to satisfy that is for the wrath to be satisfied. And Jesus is the only one who can satisfy it. And he did on the cross. And so we brought face to face again with the Lord Jesus Christ as our hope my friends, this is, tells us how the world's gotten to be where it is. But to go back to that first statement, what was, where did it begin? For Adam, a spark of faith. Will you take God at his word? That tells you who you are as one who is at war with God and dead in your trespasses and sins. Will you take God at his word and repent of your sins Confess those sins. Don't point your finger at mom and dad and brother and sister and the people in the world and all the bad things. It's right here's the problem. That's where you need to point your finger. You go to God like that man. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Beating your breast for your sins because you're under the wrath of God right now. And the only one who can satisfy that is Jesus Christ. The one who laid down his life for you, for sinners like you and like me. Stop your autonomy. It's a, it's a sham. You can't live on your own. You can't rule yourself. By the matter of fact, because God keeps, is going to keep intruding into your life, just like he's doing again this morning. He's intruding into your life and saying, listen, your, your efforts at autonomy, I'm telling you, through the gospel, through the word, won't work. And he's coming to you saying, turn to me, believe on me, trust in my son. Behold the severity of God, but behold the mercy of God in Christ Jesus.
My friends, he paid the price. He has entered in for us. May God be pleased to help us as we lay hold of him. Let's pray. Father, be merciful to us that we would see clearly something of clearly what you've taught in your word about the problems of mankind. Would you be pleased to deliver each one of us? Would you be pleased, O oh God, to help us? That we are your children would be thankful for what you have done for us in Christ Jesus. Our Father, we look to you and ask that you would write your word upon our hearts and you would do it for the glory of King Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.